Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Berthiel. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites that have been designated as having outstanding value to humanity by the United Nations. We will spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the people who built them, and who now save them for all our benefit. One of the bureaus within the United Nations is UNESCO, which was created to encourage the identification and preservation of cultural and natural heritage around the world. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. There are 1,157 sites across the world, and more being added every year. We're going to release episodes in the order by year that these sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first sites designated in 1978. With the introduction out of the way, let's begin. A note before we begin. If you would like to support the show, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell your friends about us, and leave us a glowing five-star review on your favorite platform. This will help us by supporting the show and helping us grow this project. So, in this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to the island of Goray, which is off the coast of Senegal. It was the largest slave trading center off the African coast from the 15th to the 19th century. So this is a tough one to cover. This is an example of a choice of a World Heritage Site being more about the human experience rather than the beauty, nature, or positive culture of the site. There are many such sites that UNESCO has added to the list, and in this type of episode, we're not really celebrating as much as sharing the site and its history so that we can all learn from it. The island of Gore is a 45-acre island of barren volcanic rock about two miles off the coast of the city of Dakar in the country of Senegal in West Africa. The island became important because of its position of centrality between the north and south and offering a safe harbor for anchored ships. The island is also very close to the nearest point to the Americas. Slaves were brought from across West Africa, with the supposed strongest of them coming from Ghana. Many of these people were sold by local tribes and others were taken by European colonists. None came of their own free will. The island was ruled by the Portuguese, the Dutch, English, and French, and is often referred to as Memory Island. Why is it called that? It was called that because it was selected by UNESCO to be a reminder of human exploitation and also as a place for reconciliation. Until the abolition of trade in French colonies, the island was essentially a warehouse that had over a dozen slave houses. So let's start by covering what buildings and sites still remain on the island. The architecture ranges from grim slave houses to elegant slave traders' houses. A castle on a rocky plateau covered with fortifications makes up a significant portion of the island. The island is now considered a pilgrimage destination for the African diaspora and a place for the exchange and dialogue between cultures through the confrontation of ideals of recognition and forgiveness by UNESCO and other organizations. At the height of the African slave trade, there were up to 28 slave houses operating on the island where kidnapped people from different parts of West Africa were transferred to ships destined for the Americas and beyond. Slaves were imprisoned, chained, and lived in crowded conditions awaiting their transfer in boats to their destination, where they were then sold. 
The largest of these slaves' houses was built by the Dutch in 1786. The main buildings that remain on the island include the Slave House, which Keith just mentioned, and that was built in 1786 and is the home of the Door of No Return, which was the final place exported slaves touched African soil. We also have the William Ponty School, the Rollet de l'Espandon, which is an old colonial hotel and the former residence of the French governor. There's the Maritime Museum, the Museum of Women's History, the Northern Battery, which has a historical museum of Senegal and was built between 1852 and 1865, the Police Office, built in the late 1400s, the Government Palace, and the Gorey Castle and 17th century Gorey Police Station, which is formerly a dispensary, which is kind of funny and is believed to be the site of the first chapel built by the Portuguese in the 15th century. It seems like it's taken on a lot of ironic transformations over the years. The island got its name from the term Good Raid because of the corruption of its original Dutch name, Gooderid, which means Good Roadstead, which is actually a body of water sheltered from rip currents, tides, or ocean swell. This was the first terminus of the slave traders who took slaves from the mainland. This island was the center of the rivalry between European nations over control of the slave trade for many centuries. That's interesting. I think the general history of this island is really unique. Let's back up and talk a bit about that. Due to some of the pre-European ritual pots that were found, which were decorated with fish vertebrae and twin motifs, as well as fishing tools and equipment, it's been thought that the island may have primarily been used for ritual activities and practices of the local West African people before travelers from the quote-unquote New World arrived. Archaeology findings show that the island was abandoned around the 15th century, maybe the middle of it, possibly due to a massive termite invasion. There isn't any evidence of physical struggle between the European or any other cultural group causing this abandonment. The island was first visited by Europeans in 1444 by Portuguese sailors. Later, Portuguese major captain Lanzarote and his crew were the first to make Afro-European relations with Goree Island in 1445. After seeing Goree, he and his officers sent a few men ashore to leave peace offerings of a cake, a mirror, and a piece of paper with a cross drawn on it. It was apparently intended to be a peaceful action, but the Africans tore up the paper and smashed the cake and mirror, thus setting the tone for future relations between the Portuguese and Africans of Goree Island. The island is one of the first places in Africa to be settled by Europeans, and from 1588 to 1814, it changed hands 17 times, with each nation adding to the history and culture in its own way. From 1677 to the suppression of slave trading in 1814, a reported 200 to 400 slaves passed through the island annually, usually through the infamous Door of No Return. I want to point out something important here, and something that will come up later. The number of enslaved people who have traveled through this island is a hotly debated topic worldwide, and the numbers range wildly. Abigail and I do not want to get into this debate, but want to say this. This site is meant to be a place of reconciliation and learning of the past, 
That's how we are going to present it. Okay, so Gore was mostly a trading post. Apart from slaves, beeswax, hides, and grain were also traded. The population of the island increased and decreased based on the circumstances from a few hundred free Africans and Creoles to about 1,500. There would not have been many European residents at any one time. The Portuguese were the first to have a presence on Goree around 1450. They built a small stone chapel and used the land as a cemetery. The island was captured by the United Netherlands in 1588, then the Portuguese again, and then the Dutch again shortly after. In 1619, American colonists in Jamestown, Virginia, bought their first shipload of slaves, which were West Africans shipped from Garay. The island was then briefly taken away from the Dutch by the British in 1663, but it was soon recaptured by the Dutch. After the French invasion in 1677 during the Franco-Dutch War, the island remained French until 1960. There were brief periods of British occupation during the wars fought between France and Britain, but these occupations were short-lived. As early as the 18th century, the Gore settlements were segregated into quarters. The Bambara quarter for the slaves, the Gourmets quarter who were the Christianized Africans, and a quarter for the residents of Gore, including free Africans. By the later half of the 18th century, the segregation was eventually between the seigneurs and their families and then the rest of the island. And a quick note about that. The seigneurs are an important group that we'll talk about later. Gore is most famously known as the location of the Maison de Glavis, which means a house of slaves in French. This was built by an Afro-French Metis family in about 1780. The house of slaves is one of the oldest houses on the island and it is now used as a tourist destination to show the horrors of the slave trade throughout the Atlantic world. During the 18th and 19th centuries, Goree was home to African Creole or the Matisse community of merchants, with links to both the city of St. Louis in Africa and the Gambia, as well as France's colonies in the Americas. As we mentioned earlier, Matisse women, called Sinia, were important to the city's business life. These women owned ships, property, and commanded male clerks. They were also famous for cultivating fashion and entertainment. One Sinia and slave trader, Anne Rossignol, lived in what is now Haiti in the 1780s. She became one of the richest free African businesswomen and eventually emigrated to Charleston, South Carolina in the United States. She's believed to be the first free African to have emigrated voluntarily and freely to America. In 1794, during the French Revolution, France abolished slavery and the slave trade from Senegal was said to have stopped. However, a French engraving from 1797 shows that the trade was still going on. In 1815, during Napoleon's political comeback, he definitively abolished the slave trade, and thankfully, this time, it stuck. After the decline of the slave trade from Senegal in the 1770s and 1780s, the town became an important port for shipments of peanuts, peanut oil, gum arabic, ivory, and other legitimate trade. Merchants established a presence on the mainland of the coast of West Africa starting in 1841. During this time, many of the established families actually started to leave the island. So in 1872, Goree became a French commune with an elected mayor and municipal council. 
The island had a more positive note in history at this time, as Blaise Daigne, the first African deputy elected to the French National Assembly in 1914, was born on Gorée. From a peak of about 4,500 people in 1845, the population decreased to roughly 1,500 in the early 1900s. The island's main business changed from trading to education between roughly 1913 to 1938, as Gorée had the École Normale Supérieure William Bonti, which was a government teacher's college run by the French national government. A lot of graduates from the school would one day lead the struggle for independence of Senegal from France. The school was famous enough that in 1925, African-American historian, sociologist, and Pan-Africanist W.E.B. Du Bois wrote the following about the school, and I quote, On the picturesque island of Garay, whose ancient ramparts face modern and commercial Dakar, I saw two or three hundred fine black boys of high school rank gathered in from all Senegal by competitive tests and taught thoroughly by excellent French school teachers in accordance with a curriculum which, as far as it went, was equal to that of any European school. The island became a center of a battle during World War II in 1940, known as the Battle of Dakar. This battle was part of Operation Menace conducted by the Allies. It was an unsuccessful attempt in September of that year by the Allies to capture the strategic port of Dakar. It was hoped that the operation would overthrow the pro-German Vichy French administration in the colony and be replaced by a pro-Allied Free French one under Charles de Gaulle. The French declared the island a historic site in 1944, and then again in 1951, Gore was declared a national history site by the Senegalese government. The island started gaining prominence in 1964 when Boubacar Joseph Ndiaye started his 40-year career as curator for the House of Slaves. Through his rich storytelling, the use of props and imagery, he moved audiences who visited the house with his performances. Ndiaye was celebrated in a 2007 documentary for his life's work, and he passed away in 2009 at the age of 86. He was a fervent defender of the idea that there was a much larger number of slaves that passed through the island than most believed at the time. This idea made him a controversial figure among some of the scholars of the history of this island. He presented to many public personalities, including United States President Barack Obama, Pope John Paul II, and Nelson Mandela when they visited the island. As mentioned earlier, in the 1990s, a debate sprung up on the historic size of the Goree slave trade. In the French newspaper Le Monde, Emmanuel de Roux challenged Nguyen's repeated claims that Goree was an important slave depot which was largely based on the false interpretations of French visitors in the 18th to 19th century. His claim states the following, According to historical accounts, no more than 500 slaves per year were traded here. Compared to other centers of slave trade, this is a small number. In addition, he goes on to claim that NGI's graphic descriptions of the slaves allegedly kept are not supported by any historical documents. But according to Derue, they may have been used to drum up tourism. In response to this, several Senegalese and European researchers attended a symposium to compare research findings at the Sorbonne in April of 1997. 
and the notes supporting Daru's claim were published afterwards. More recently, Hamaday Bougoum and Bernard Toulier published an article, The Fabrication of Heritage, The Case of Goree, Senegal. This documented the elevation of Goree to an emotionally charged memorial of the transatlantic slave trade for tourist reasons. The authors claim that this was driven by the Senegalese government and started under President Leopold Sadar Senghor, who had appointed NGI with this exact goal in mind. In 2013, after NGI's passing, Jean-Luc Engrand wrote that NGI began his lobbying among African-American communities in the United States to try to use these people's desire to look for their own heritage in Africa that arose in the 1970s. This American interest grew after the TV series Roots aired during this time. For this reason, the author claims that NGI's exaggerated the importance of Senegal and Goree by claiming that 20 million enslaved Africans were shipped from there. Even though several media sources have reported on the exaggerated history of Goree, including the Seattle Times and the Washington Post, some sources, such as the BBC, still claim Goree was a major center of the slave trade. UNESCO also supports the claim that this island was the largest slave trading center on the African coast, claiming that an estimated 20 million slaves passed through the island between 1536 and 1848. For this reason, as well as others, UNESCO incorporated the site into the World Heritage List in 1978. Abigail and I want to reiterate that no matter the number of people who passed through the island as slaves, and no matter whose claim is more correct, even one single person captured and sold into slavery was too many. Because of the importance of this site for the heritage of many people around the world, the island hosts many visitors each year who are trying to understand the lives of their ancestors. I'd like to talk about how to visit the island for those who are planning on going. Goree is connected to the mainland by a ferry service that departs about every 30 minutes for pedestrians only from Dakar, Senegal, and the ride itself only takes about 20 or so minutes. The island is so tiny that there are no cars on it. There's a wonderful website called Me With My Suitcase, and they've given some great tips on the ferry and visiting the island, and we'll share some of that information here. First of all, be prepared. The ferries that go to the island are pretty old and break down a lot, so the every half an hour or so schedule can sometimes be altered. You cannot reserve seats on the ferry, and since the upper seats have a better view, it's nice to try to get them, but again, just keep in mind, this is only about a 20 or so minute trip. Please know that locals will also load animals, produce, and whatever else is needed for their daily life on the ferry. So once you get to the island, there is a minor tourist tax to visit, and it's collected on the dock where you first get to the island. Once you land, the ferry site can be quite chaotic, with lots of people trying to sell you things or offer to help you get around the island for a fee. Don't let them overwhelm you. I would suggest being careful before taking them up on their offer as well. Many locals do sell souvenir items on the island. When you're on the ferry, they may approach you and try to convince you to buy something from them on the island. MeWithMySuitcase.com suggests that you talk to them, but don't make any promises. If you promise to buy something from them later on, or pay them for a service, they're going to expect you to keep your word. 
and they will follow you around until you make good. I'm assuming that this could get pretty annoying and potentially impact your visit in a negative way. Also, locals may approach you and offer to act as a tour guide. Be prepared to negotiate a fair price since they're going to assume that you are rich. Many of the historical, commercial, and residential buildings have been turned into restaurants and hotels to support the tourist traffic. And if you head there early, there's a trick, again shared with me with mysuitcase.com. Go opposite of the crowds. Most head towards these restaurants, which are left from the ferry. Head right, right across the beach, and follow the coast where you can. You can see easily all of the island, you just don't need to see it with everybody else. It is reported that there is virtually no crime on the island as well, so that's also encouraging. The main reason that some people visit the island, the House of Slaves, has a small fee if you're planning on visiting that site. The best time to visit the island is any time after October and before May, during the drier months. The temperatures are more moderate during this time, whereas the average temperature year-round can be anywhere from 83 to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. The rainy season is normally August and September, with November being the hottest month of the year. Most visitors choose to visit the island as a day trip, but the hotels do seem to be quite affordable on the island itself if you do choose to stay. If you are visiting, be prepared with your language apps. It appears that some French is spoken on the island, but it also appears that very little English is spoken by the locals. Abigail, did you find out in your research how many people live on the island? I did. So the population as of the 2018 census was about 1,800 people. Given the small population of the island, you'd figure that upkeeping the site wouldn't be a challenge. However, about 1,000 people visit the island every day, and unfortunately this has led to issues with pollution. And the government's actually trying to implement efforts to educate both tourists and locals on the importance of recycling and ensure that they're not throwing their plastic bottles off the side of the ferry or leaving them on the beach, which can also lead to sea animals eating them. There's also been some erosion of the shoreline due to rising water levels, which I thought was interesting. And that means that buildings are in danger of being washed away or experiencing regular flooding and water damage. And the Senegalese government, in conjunction with financial assistance from other countries, such as Japan and France, is dedicated to rehabilitating the buildings to prevent future damage. I bring this up even though it sounds unrelated, because this could impact your trip if you're planning on visiting. A, do not throw any trash on the beach, you could get fined. B, there's a possibility that there could be flooding if you're visiting after a hurricane or other inclement weather, so please be sure to check any government websites before you visit. I'm hopeful that the dedication of the Senegalese, Japanese, and French governments will safekeep this site for all future generations. So Abigail, did you find anything about specific dishes that you can get on the island when you visit? There are only a few small restaurants on the island, but if you're a picky eater, you may want to pack some snacks because it looks like the food is a bit adventurous for people that like bland food. So the national dish is Thiabodian, and that is a mixture of rice, fish, peppers, and vegetables, and it's served at basically every restaurant. 
They're also well known for their local beers. Well, you know, I love a good local beer. Okay, let's transition here. As with any site we investigate, Abigail spent some time researching the legends, the paranormal, and the conspiracy theories. What did you come across on the island of Gray? We mentioned the House of Slaves and the Door of No Return before. Before going into the supposed hauntings, I want to provide some context. So let me paint a picture of how poorly the slaves were treated before they were even put on ships to go to the New World and the disgusting conditions they were kept in. They were held captive in dark, airless holding cells, where up to 20 men were chained to the walls by both their hands and feet with a large iron weight around their ankles. Once a day, they'd be allowed to pick up this iron ball and leave the room for only a couple of minutes in order to relieve themselves. They usually smelled of blood and excrement. They were underfed, terrified, and beaten for the slightest infraction. The door of no return holds extreme symbolic importance because this was the physical door that slaves passed through before they left the continent of Africa, the only home they'd ever known. One in five of these people would not survive the trip to the slave markets of the Americas, and if they did, they would only know captivity, suffering, endless work, shame, and pain. They were separated from their families and their cultural identity, becoming property that could be bought and sold. When these people were forced to walk through the door of no return, their chances of survival plummeted. Visitors specifically claim they've seen apparitions in the House of Slaves, or hear whispers, especially around the door of no return. Given the sad and violent history of this place, that makes sense to me. When someone lives and dies in such fear and so violently, I just... I don't know. I have to wonder if part of their soul gets left behind. Also, I think it's the same phenomena people experience when they visit a site like Auschwitz. Just knowing the history and having that context makes it feel heavier and more disturbing somehow. It's hollowed ground. I'm in agreement with the idea of hollowed ground. I've visited many places that have tremendously dark and violet histories. It's hard not to feel the shadows of the suffering by people from the past sort of reaching out to you. I hope we can all agree it's essential that sites like this are kept safe so that future generations can learn from the mistakes we've made in the past and strive never to allow them to be repeated.